Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, April 19th, 2021. I am John Bodhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, the 75-year-old monthly of intellectual analysis, political probity, and cultural criticism from a conservative perspective. Our May issue, I believe, is up now at CommentaryMagazine.com, a treasure trove of fascinating and interesting and unforgettable material. Uh, You should go there. Uh, you can read Terry Teachout on Tom Stoppard. You can read Rob Long on why there may never be another nude scene in a movie. You can read Matt Contnetti on Joe Biden going for broke. You can read our own Christine Rosen on Christine. Yes. Your piece. Yes. Oh, about reporters mm-hmm. who uh, ref- who take any criticism of their reporting as harassment. <laughs> yes. Yes. So now. Too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so people who have been selling us on the idea of white fragility for the last year, as you point out, and Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, themselves display white fragility anytime anyone criticizes them on Twitter. Uh, this is a, a threat to the to, to free press and, and free speech. <laughs> um, Brendan Stewart on Ian Hersley Ali. Uh, I've got a piece on how the Arab big government is back. Um, uh, Wilfred Riley on... Uh, Asian Americans and crime. Uh, just great. It's a great issue. I'm very proud of it. Go get a few free reads. We ask you to subscribe. And with us today, the aforementioned Christine Rosen, senior writer. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, guys, do we start with COVID or do we start with Derek Chauvin? Derek, Derek Chauvin, final arguments are uh, are 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 going to go on today and the jury will be sequestered as of Monday night. A uh, jury sequestered as of Monday night means that they uh, certainly had an opportunity over the weekend to hear uh, representative Maxine Waters of California uh, as uh, Noah says, chairman of the uh, now the chairman of the financial services committee. Is that right? Uh, in the house of representatives. Uh Call for violence in the case of uh, of a of a of a not guilty verdict. I mean, she explicitly and affirmatively called for violence. Right. Well, I don't have the quote in front of me. Does anybody have the quote? We need in front to get more confrontational. Right. We need to get um, more confrontational. She also she also said it while she was breaking the local curfew uh, that was imposed. Um, uh, you know, in response to fears about violence in in uh, in Minnesota. And um, more or less while uh, National Guard troops uh, actually uh, suffered a drive-by shooting. Right. So, um, Noah, you had an interesting point about uh, about how um, uh, – what are we to make of the fact that this uh, call is coming from inside the House of Representatives, as you might say? <clears throat> well, only uh, my – take is sort of a trite, shallow media criticism, but nevertheless, that's uh, valuable because, you, you know, the press has every opportunity to avoid confronting this sort of thing and its implications in part because Republicans pounce. Um, to define that phenomenon, it is whenever you have a news story that reflects poorly, let's say, on Democratic interests or Democrats generally, um, the story becomes not the story itself, but the reaction to the story from Republicans who happen to notice it, um, providing Democratic allies in the press with an opportunity not to cover the story, but to cover the excessive reaction to it, which is probably opportunistic generally. Um, and this is an f- observable phenomenon. I wrote about it first in 2015, but it, ju- it persists now, I think, probably just as a way to ad- antagonize Republicans, but it persists generally. And you have all the opportunity in the world to ignore this sort of thing because Republicans have A, noticed it, and B, some of the people who have had an outsized reaction to it are pretty suspect themselves, notably uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a conspiracy theorist and kind of a lunatic and a, uh, somebody who really likes publicity. And who's also, though, nevertheless, a backbencher, a backbencher in the House who doesn't have any real authority or power. She attempted to launch this um, caucus, I guess, the other over the weekend, which had some explicitly nativist language in it and was sort of convoluted and bizarre and, and on its own terms contradictory. And, you know, that effort failed. But that gives you an opportunity when backbenchers talk about this sort of no, thing. No, but you to have to project. explain why Marjorie Taylor Greene has called for the expulsion of Maxine Waters from the House of Representatives. That's correct. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, that's an opportunity to yeah. do that. But 
all throughout the Trump years, Democrats made a very salient argument to which I subscribed, which is that you can do all you can criticize these people who are out of power all you want. It's not invalid and it's valuable to a certain extent. But you also have to maintain a certain amount of focus on the people who are in power and the party that is in power. And to fail to do that is the pursuit of a port in the storm. It's just an effort for you to avoid confronting what are really priorities right now for the American voting public. And anybody who ignores what Maxine Waters is doing here in favor of castigating Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing exactly that. Right. There's, a, there's also a bit of a of history here with Waters. You know, in 2018, when, when Trump was still in office, she kind of, uh, if you're a conservative, you remember this as a kind of infinite, infamous moment where she was telling people to get in the face of, you know, if you see a Trump cabinet member in public, you harass them, you yell at them, you make sure you get in their face. Um, this was seen as a kind of uh, breach of civility. and But all the liberal media publications basically covered for her and said, well, we have to get tough because look look at Trump's rhetoric. And they're not, they weren't wrong about Trump's rhetoric, but th- the idea being that you, you have to respond to that with an equal level of, of vitriol. Another interesting point here about her most recent remarks, though, is that there's ongoing litigation that the NAACP and some members of Congress have have uh, been pursuing against Trump for incitement. So, I mean, Maxine Waters isn't very smart. She could be called as a witness in that now because, you know, to, to sort of uh, for the for Trump's defense in terms of what is and isn't considered incitement and uh, violent rhetoric. So it's a it's a very strange it, it's a completely predictable move for Maxine Waters, one of the most ethically corrupt members of Congress, um, who's only been, you know, kind of rehabbed image wise uh, during the Trump years, because before that she had fallen into some disfavor, even among you know many Democrats for her uh, ethical breaches. But now, you know, she she came she's now hip because she was a big Trump resistor. She was a big social media star. Uh, I think she should be called to account for this. And but as Noah says, it's doubtful she will be in the media. I mean, the interesting thing about the sort of publicity hog backbencher is that uh, when the parties were stronger, they were kept far from the councils of power. Like this was one of the things that the parties existed to do and that the centralized authority in the House in particular made sure was the case that if you had somebody like B1, Bob Dornan, um, or um, why am I trying to, I forget the guy uh, with the horrible hair piece, Jim Traficant from Ohio, one a Republican, one a Democrat. There, there are different cases of these kind of like lunatic guys and um, they would be assigned committee assignments to make sure that they were as far from power uh, as possible, and they could just go off and do whatever Dana Rohrabacher. They could do, go off and do whatever whatever nonsense they wanted to do, and not actually uh, disturb the good workings of the of the body. Otherwise, and now with Maxine Waters, for example, running a major committee, uh, that's one of the many things that is broken down institutionally. Like she has no business being anywhere near a gavel, and there she is. She's got a got a gavel now. Yeah, she's got seniority. She's been in the house for decades and all of that but nonetheless you know there is a real danger it's all part of the you know over window method of you make it possible for um gadflies and lunatics and and wildly irresponsible people to be in positions of real authority and you then create the conditions under which those people get to make decisions and they bring other people like them they create a new category of actor where there are no people who are beyond the pale and where institutional discretion no longer functions. And that's what we have here in her case. But to get to the larger point, uh, Derek Chauvin uh, is, the jury is going to go into sequester, having heard a congressman, potentially having heard a, a, a major figure in the Democratic Party calling for more confrontation. Should there should their verdict not go the way she wants it. Um, And this is one of the reasons that people thought that the jury should be sequestered and uh, strikes me as, as, as a potential action item on appeal. Um, There are a couple of things that went on that suggest that the judge in this case might, there might be action items for Derek Chauvin on appeal uh, reading uh, very technically into the, the sorts of things that he allowed uh, certain prosecution witnesses to say, and that were said even after he had limited the scope of what it was that they were supposed to say about certain types of evidence. Nonetheless, it seems clear 
that the prosecution staged a pretty strong case. Uh, the defense parried pretty well, but its own witnesses were not as authoritative, maybe in a couple of cases, as they might otherwise have been. And that, um, you know, there is there is reason to believe either way that 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 either you know that that Chauvin might be rather easily convicted or that you know the jury might hang or something like that um, a note a note on one of the defense's experts uh who testified uh, a home he used to own was uh, bathed in pig's blood and you know uh, protesters uh, assuming he still lived there uh, attacked the home uh, another example of a kind of weird threatening blackmailing of you know the public and of the people on the jury who again might have heard about this or seen seen it despite whatever you know news uh, blocks they they have in place right now it's it's it is kind of astonishing and i think you know the weird way in which our mainstream media coverage right now is looking at the city of minneapolis you know they're just kind of reporting as if it's totally normal to have to board up most of your city in preparation for a riot and a riot even if he's found guilty but not guilty enough you know it's like will justice have been served if he doesn't get you know a life sentence or will justice be served if he only has like 10 years uh, sentence uh, it'll be interesting to see how much this sort of media preparation of of the verdict is going to contribute to whatever violence and disorder might come after it. And you really hope there isn't going to be any, but it's become this kind of like, I mean, people joke in a sort of dark humor sort of way, but like, you know, a riot season's beginning again. I mean, it's not funny. We had a bunch of a bunch of unrest here in DC over the weekend and in other cities as well. We should call this what it is, because for a year we had to listen to people tell us this was mostly peaceful and it was just protests and they're angry because they have a right to be angry, all of which might be somewhat true. But this is criminal behavior in many cases. And, and the, the, the stuff that's been going on in Minneapolis in particular over the last week, there's been a lot of violence and disorder that cannot be called peaceful or peaceable assembly, which is constitutionally protected or peaceful protest. Yeah. And by the way, you know, this this reveals once again, um, much of the outrage over what happened uh, January 6th in the siege of the Capitol um, as um, a bunch of sort of, you know, opportunistic nonsense on, on the part of the media. Now, it's now w- what happened was deadly serious and, and an absolute horror. But the sort of the blip of that moment where there was recognition uh, among uh, the, the left and liberals that that mass political violence and attack on federal property is indeed a very bad and ruinous thing. Um, that lesson did not last. Um, that that was that was that was merely an opportunistic um, uh, uh, moment that to to attack the other side. Uh, you know, going a slightly different direction, but following along this question of the media's uh, role in all of this. Um, what we have here, and the Maxine Waters saying, you know, confront Trump officials when they're when they're dining out at a restaurant. That's a good thing to do. Uh, name and shame people. Go to people's houses and throw dogs, you know, throw animal blood on them uh, for the for the for the sin of having testified for for the defense in the Chauvin trial. Even and turns out it's not their house. Uh, there's the story about a local ABC reporter in California having discovered that a local sheriff's deputy or something like that contributed ten dollars to the legal defense fund of Kyle Rittenhouse, the, the kid who uh, is under indictment for uh, for shooting uh, someone in Madison, was it, I'm sorry, Kenosha? I think in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after what happened with Jacob Blake. By the way, the cop in the Jacob Blake uh, shooting was not, uh, in the end, indicted, um, I believe. Uh, anyway, uh, gave $10. A, a local ABC reporter went to his house went to his house and tried to do one of these, you know, uh, on the door, you know, on the doorstep uh, confrontations because this guy gave $10 to Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, uh, and what w- what is the story here? That because he works uh, in law enforcement, uh, he doesn't have free speech rights or he can't give $10. It's $10. It's not $1,000. not $10,000. Not doing anything except giving somebody $10 for it. And so what we have here is this notion that it's open season on if you, this is now the way naming and shaming and publicly humiliating people who have political views different from yours is now part of the mainstream media's approach to things. It is Taylor Lawrence's approach to things. It is a, it is, it is, it is legitimized in a way that uh, our friend Eric Erickson 
uh, today said, you know, if you follow the logic of this, reporters are going to start getting shot. People are going to start coming onto people's, you know, front porches with cameras, scaring the crap out of people. And people are going to, you know, there's going to be confrontations and someone's going to take out a gun and shoot a reporter for coming to your doorstep because you gave $10 to somebody. I mean, this is no joke. Like we are, we are breaking down norms in a way that uh, is going to have consequences that are very hard to fathom. Uh, and once again, the whole question is, it all looks good to the people right now who have the upper hand because they think that they're in the right and they think that they have the moral high ground and all of that. But these things can turn on a dime and they they can be gone after just as swiftly as, it, as the people they disapprove of can. There, there's an arms race uh, quality to all this um, because nothing, there's nothing, once, once that this is done uh, by a liberal reporter, there's nothing to stop um, some right-wing journalist from, from, you know, knocking on the door and sticking a microphone in the face of someone who gave to, uh, I don't know, someone, you know, someone else's defense, uh, uh, on the left and so on. And just as Trump, uh, saw fit to, you know, uh, incite in whatever manner he did, uh, his, his followers on, on January 6th, uh, Maxine Waters does the same. And, um, as it, as it gets accepted, um, that will also be returned and one-upped on the, on the other side. And, and so, so I, I have a, a theory about all this. It's sort of a theory of everything. I get your, your take on it. So, John, you, it's, it, this kind of springs to mind because you mentioned Taylor Lawrence, whose beat is social media and being very online. And it strikes me that the people who would justify that kind of oversight or somebody who donated to Kyle Rittenhouse is not because of either the public official or Kyle Rittenhouse per se, but the online environment, deep, deep online in these weird forums that most normal people don't don't uh, populate, that have that are really radicalized, uh, very racially aggressive, white nationalist types who congregate online and talk about this person as though he was an animating figure, an animating force. And the, what they rationalize, what reporters rationalize themselves into when they take this on, take this mission on, is that the public official is therefore giving aid and comfort to these <clears throat> online groups that we can no longer afford to ignore, even though they're, you know, they're marginalized and sort of weird and eccentric, the, their power has been demonstrated repeatedly over the course of the Trump era. And beginning in 2017, news outlets began to devote a lot of uh, reporting power and, and coverage to these obscure online groups under the assumption that they were responsible for delivering Trump into the White House. And that only got worse after January 6th. And there was a lot of intervening confirmation over the course of the Trump presidency that we were being governed by the forums on 4chan. But the people who are committing themselves to covering this beat have driven themselves mad, are absolutely insane now because they are subsumed. They have jumped into this, this fever swamp and they have mistaken, in my view, mistaken its actual relevance and inflated its relevance indeed, because that is the justification for their very their jobs, their beats. Uh, and they have created for themselves a, a, a sort of hall of mirrors that doesn't really reflect the real world, um, but drives them insane because they are surrounding themselves with insane people. So this is all sort of this self-perpetuating cycle of madness. I want to talk about this in relation to some of the COVID news. But before we do that, let me talk to you about a couple of our sponsors today. Uh, first, Fast Growing Trees, which is the world's largest online nursery, fastgrowingtrees.com. It means you can skip the big box stores. No more waiting in lines. No more messy cars. No more digging through a last lackluster selection of, of trees and plants. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants, expertly curated to thrive in your area, and deliver to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth. There's a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home and yard. Fastgrowingtrees.com planting season is here. 
So join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com. Plus the 30 day live and thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting now through June 30th. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. That's 15% off at fast growing, growing. I'm sorry. I'm going to say this very clearly. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. That's fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. And uh, we continue to get very complex and very confusing financial news uh, uh, with real signs of inflation, with real signs of explosive growth, with real signs of uh, uh, the market spinning itself up into a frenzy, uh, Dow over 34,000, uh, all of this uh, money out there ready to happen, cryptocurrency crashing, who the hell knows what's going on? You know who knows what's going on? The Bonson Group. You want to know what's going on? Go to the Bonson Group. Those two newsletters I've been telling you about, the dctoday.com daily and dividendcafe.com weekly, will give you a sense of how all of this connects to the policies that are being made in Washington by Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, by Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve Chairman, by the White House and its pursuit of this uh, massive infrastructure bill. All of this is having a daily, even hourly effect on the markets and your money and how you invest your money and what's going to happen to our economic future. So please take the advice of our friends at the Bonson Group, David Bonson and his 28 fellow financial management analysts in this bi-coastal management firm with $2.8 billion under management. That's the Bonson Group for your antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. Here's what I wanted to talk about. We uh, continue to get information about COVID and about the vaccines that are unambiguously good, positive, important, helpful, and very heartening. Uh, Particularly, I want to talk about something that was just sent to me by my friend David Bonson. Okay? Uh, Israel at uh, 62% of its entire population, uh, this is as of 4-11, this is uh, April 11th, 62% of Israel's population with at least one dose vaccinated, 62%. The daily cases per 1 million residents, 26. 26 uh, COVID. So what does this tell us? This tells us that we are, despite the surge uh, that we uh, that we see in Michigan, despite some of the surges in cases over the last two weeks, we've now heard that 50% of the American adult population has had at least one shot. That was the news yesterday. We are on our way out of this. We are on our way from an escape from this. And what happens on social media And what we've seen in journalism over the last two weeks is something very interesting, which is that people are saying, I just don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable getting out of the COVID mindset. And some of them say, like Olga Kazan in the the Atlantic and others, look, some of it's got to do with my social anxiety. I freely admit it. I got a lot of social anxiety. I don't like going to parties. I don't like... You know, being in the office and having to deal with, you know, superiors in the office, I get sweaty, I get nervous, I don't know how to do it. And so being at home has been a lot easier for me. And so this is going to be hard for me. And I recognize that it's hard for me. But also the data say blah, 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 blah. And then you have this idea, which is like, you know what, this has been good for a lot of people, for the socially anxious, it's been good and all that. And we still don't really know. And there's Dr. Fauci again this weekend saying again, look, there's a very small risk, extremely small, incredibly small risk that you might get reinfected or that you might infect somebody else. So you got to keep wearing that mask. We're just, just a few, hang on just a few more weeks. Just hang on. Keep wearing the mask. Keep socially distancing. Keep washing your hands. Keep doing this. Keep doing that. That is not what the data are saying. That is not what the data say. Social media plays a big role in this. How? Because social media is a leveler. The point about tweets is that every tweet, in theory, is the same as every other tweet. Now, some tweet gets promoted. Some tweets are by people who have a lot of followers. Some tweets are by people who don't have many followers. 
But there can be an engagement between somebody who has a lot of followers and somebody who doesn't have a lot of followers, and then something happens and all of that. And uh, and one of the things that is happening is a leveling of the people who say, we need to get out of this and live the lives that we should ordinarily be living, and all the data suggests it. And then the people who go, nah, I don't want to. And 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 the 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 stress, in other words, not not the not not the psychological stress, but the sort of the emphasis, there is no emphasis. And so they appear to be views of relatively equal weight, particularly with Fauci doing this thing that he is doing that is now starting to now is actually starting to approach a kind of monomania, which is they are not ready yet to say stop masking. But they can't keep themselves from saying, go get vaccinated and then do nothing differently. Do uh, nothing differently. And that is a social media effect that is then, you know, given super attention by Fauci's way of handling this matter. Yeah, I'm writing about this for the blog there, today. There are policy consequences associated with this kind of madness because that's what it is. I and mean, we're talking about a vanishingly small risk of breakthrough infections, something like 5,000 some odd, based on 120 million people who have had one dose of this thing or more. That's uh, just, it's infinitesimal. You can barely measure it. And everybody knows this, but states like Oregon and Michigan and Virginia are codifying their extraordinary measures as indefinite or permanent and saying those words indefinitely or permanently keeping these masking restrictions on, for example, for people in in public settings or public sector people based on nothing at all other than the monomania, as you say, of the public health bureaucracy. And then you had, and the reason why you had Fauci out there talking about this is because God bless him. Florida governor Ron DeSantis is out there establishing a counter narrative, which is desperately needed. He's saying armed with science, by the way, armed with the facts as we know them, that your risk is vanishingly small if you are double dosed. Go out there, get uh, you know, enjoy life. And what's more, he's mocking the people who are double vaccinated and who think it's their job to sit a nautical mile from their nearest interlocutor, double masked, while they you know, while just projecting this kind of paranoid terror when it is completely untethered to anything we would understand to be a rational assessment of risk you're basically a germaphobe and we used to mock these people, but it's being encouraged and it has negative policy consequences. And for people like Ms. Kazan, who freely admits that she has social anxiety, it only reinforces what in another era we would call neurosis. Well, uh, picking up on that and um, John's point about uh, social media elevating uh, this whole thing, we should talk about uh, David Leonhardt's tweet uh, from the New York times he, the writer at the New York Times, David Leonhardt, tweeted this morning, if you are vaccinated, still wear a mask in some situations, even though, yes, the medical benefits are tiny. It contributes to a culture of safety and is a sign of solidarity with the unvaccinated who remain a majority of Americans. They deserve your support. So this is actually, you, you know, as far as I could tell, the first blunt admission and um endorsement of the idea that wearing a mask is uh, a kind of virtue signaling, is a kind of theater, and should be worn for that reason. Well, that's, and we've seen this, I mean, this this does go all the way to the top. The Biden administration has been double, you know, Biden walks around in double masks. There was a picture released of him having lunch with the Japanese prime minister this weekend, and they're sitting, you know, on either side of a long table both with their masks on. Um, it, it's insane. I, I don't know if the prime minister of Japan has been vaccinated. I assume he has been. We know Biden has been. Why are they doing this? And that that tweet encapsulates why. It's we are signaling something about our behavior that the because we don't believe the vast majority of Americans will behave as we did. I mean, there is something to that. It's it's astonishing. Yeah. I just want to add one point about that yeah. his, about that tweet. A culture of safety is a bad thing. Safety is a good thing. Personal safety, making safe, rational decisions for oneself and one's family, that's a good thing. A culture of safety is where you begin to sort of lock up as a society. Um, And I would go as far as to say it's not particularly American. What about a culture of thriving or a culture of aspiration, Um, especially at this moment as the vaccination is going, a culture of, of, you know, enthusiasm and optimism? Um, That is actually 
what what we desperately need. It's irrational and it's impossible to achieve. Everybody who is who's not you know enthralled to their own neurosis can compartmentalize risk. When they go out and take a drive to the store, when they drink alcohol, when they eat uncooked shellfish, when they go for a swim, you are compartmentalizing a serious risk and 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 taking a rational assessment of that risk and saying, you know, maybe the reward is better for is better than it. We are we are throwing that rationality out the window here. And remember when we were talking about passports, vaccine passports? Um, so my wife said something to me that was interesting over the weekend. You know, Pfizer comes out. We got Pfizer dose. Pfizer comes out and says, hey, you're probably going to need a boost in six to 12 months. And maybe you'll have to get inoculated, you know, annually. So she says to me, well, I guess we should, you know, hold off on laminating our, our vaccine pass our vaccine papers, right? That prove your vaccination. Why? You know why? Because not one person in the month and a half I've had this thing has ever asked for it. No airport security official, no government official, no private interest has taken the slightest interest in my vaccination status. Then why should they? Because it opens precisely zero doors for you. There is not one (laughs) thing that is available to you that is not available to everybody else. This is a totally academic concept. There is no incentive to do this, only inducements. Okay, so the health commissioner of New York City is a guy named Dr. Dave Chokshi. And he has made a commercial that runs on New York City's local news channel, New York One. And he says, hi, I'm Dr. Dave Chokshi. I'm New York's doctor, which is pretty nervy since New York has 250,000 doctors, 249,999 of them more accomplished than Dr. Dave Dave Chokshi, who was just somebody who sucked up to de Blasio in order to get this idiot job. But nonetheless, there he is. He is New York City's doctor. And he says... There's hope. I want to talk to you first about hope. It's vaccines. They're really good. But there are variants. There are variants, and the variants are scary. And the variants uh, are, we're, we're in a race against the variants. So we need to continue to mask, socially distance, wash our hands, clean surfaces, remain apart. Does the commercial end with the good news or does it end with the bad news? Is the point of the commercial to encourage people to get vaccinated or to scare the crap out of them? And the simple fact of the matter is that this is the disease of the public health industry is the notion that it is better to have the population frightened than to encourage the population by appealing not only to its sense of liberation, but also to its sense of duty, not to wear a mask, but to get the needle. Because you notice there's very little talk about the obligation that people have to get vaccinated. It's all encouragement. It's all, it's all you know, everybody, look, there are shots available at your local Walgreens. Please just go. Now everyone, you know, over 50 doesn't even have to get an appointment. Just go. Where is the suasion? Where is the idea of going on, of Biden going on TV and saying, everybody in this country needs to get vaccinated is your responsibility. If you are not doing so, you are harming this country, its economy, and its future. Like, all they're saying is you're harming people if you don't wear a mask and socially distance. That is a very, very peculiar kind of messaging, in my view. But they're also but allergic. They're also, yeah. they're also allergic to saying things that might appeal to your self-interest, naked self-interest. Like this is something you get to do, and wouldn't that be fun? They feel like it's too trivial. It has to be a profound social weight that you're, you know, sh- shouldering on your, you know, bur- this burden. It's astounding to me that how much they blew this messaging. Um, I, it occurred to me when you see any pharmaceutical commercial, right on on t- on TV, what do they show people doing <clears throat> for any drug? They show people out there whitewater rafting, uh, rock climbing, general you know, frolicking. Yes, yes. Yeah. frolicking <laughs> out to dinner, out to be. Take this drug, and you will have this rich life. Right? That is a sort of like that is the basic message of all pharmaceutical advertising well and then the then the music about the 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 potential side effects that they have to roll through legally which is like the music rises the b-roll that's the happy b-roll right Right. yeah right exactly at least you get a happy b-roll for the covid vaccine abe 
yeah would be staying in your home but, but I got <laughs> yeah no but I've got a different I've got a different theory for you my theory is that the reason that this is a failure is precisely because there are way many more Olga Kazans than we realize there are way many people in the country who are happy with the results of the lockdowns or whatever you want to call them now, whatever it is, the thing that keeps us apart is something that a lot of people don't mind that much. And that's why they need to be browbeaten into getting the vaccine because now we are in the period in which we have hit what Noah calls the demand wall. We've been having arguments about whether that's the right term, but where there's now more vaccine than there is supply in most places in New York, city now basically you can walk in and get an appointment anywhere uh and so now the question is whether people who don't get it are now affirmatively and consciously refusing to get vaccinated and what are you going to do about them well those sorts of people are overrepresented in the professional class right i don't know who i don't know what no, I mean, yeah, I don't know. We're, at, we're we're at, we're we're not at the majority of New Yorkers having been vaccinated yet, and now you can just go get vaccinated. It takes a day to get an appointment or something, and and if you're over fifty, you can walk into a thirty facilities, walk in and get the shot in five minutes. So, but, but we're are we yeah. also at that moment that that we talked about when we when we first started doing this podcast daily when the lockdowns really kicked in a little over a year ago. The concern looking ahead and and hoping and, you know, praying for vaccination and, and the end of this pandemic, the concern that the mindset shift of an entire country from taking its baseline as these hyper safety precautions and shifting the baseline back to manageable, rational risk evaluation, that doesn't come easily. I mean, you see it with, you see it in public spaces. You certainly see it with schools. You see it in any of these situations where the norm has become you know, zero, COVID zero is our is our baseline. To shift that back to, okay, there's a normal level of risk in everything we do, that doesn't come easily. And it's not just people who are generally neurotic because we've been, we've been fed this messaging. We've been behaving day to day in a way that we never used to do. And those learned behaviors are hard to unlearn. And I agree, we do need our leaders giving us that message on a regular basis uh, with, as Labe said, with some optimistic uh, future to look forward to and all the, the good it'll do. I don't know if if the Democrats and particularly Joe Biden is capable of making that message, given he ran on a platform of doing the opposite of Trump, who right. was actually trying to be somewhat optimistic. Well, I, I, I do think that one place where Noah might 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 be an error, though, I mean, I think it, it, it's it's nice to think about it this way, is it's not that people take a calculated risk every time they they eat, uh, you know, an, an oyster or or a clam or something like that. They don't think about it. They cease to think about it as a risk. That's why anybody who ever had a I mean, I was once, I don't, I don't eat shellfish, but I was once with people at a, you know, somebody had a really bad oyster, was like sickened and disgusted by it, and now is worried every time they open an oyster that it's going to be something disgusting, right? That's a, that's a classic, understandable feedback loop, right? Never had it. You don't have it. I'm not sure that the, that, that what we, what we've lived through over the last, you know, the whole notion like, you are more likely today, I think Leonhardt says this in the same piece that he even said, quote, quoting Abe, Abe's tweet, he said, today 100, 100 people or 111 people will die in car ac- a car accident today. And maybe one, you know, will get COVID or something like, it was some, I can't remember how the numbers worked, but it, it was something like that. Um, people get in cars and drive cars not because they appreciate the risk, but because they are able to forget about the risk. They don't think about the risk. People who think about the risks of things like flying are afraid of flying. Like, I don't think about the risk because if I think about it, I say, well, you know what? There has actually hasn't been a major air, uh, plane crash in the United States, I think, in eight years. If I had to think about it, I would think about that. But if I was thinking about airline safety, I would be scared to be in an airplane. Well, if it something does happen, you're dead because it'll crash and you're you're thirty five thousand feet up, and how are you going to survive and all of that? 
I don't have that in my psychology, but if I did, so now you have it about daily life for a whole lot of people. And that's where I think Christine's right, that this is hard to pull back. I don't know. I mean, this is that sort of forgetting of risk is an evolutionary trait that I don't I don't think is something you can teach people out of, which explains why we have such this, you know, this over overbearing public education campaign around this thing. You know, we talked that we until 2020, we didn't talk about really, except outside of academic circles, the Spanish flu epidemic. It was called the forgotten pandemic because society engaged in an unspoken, quiet and nevertheless concerted effort to forget. We did not want to remember that period. We didn't want to remember what we did. We didn't want to remember what we suffered through. You had to unlearn it. And there's an effort underway here to force us to forget the unlearning. Um, To Christine's point about COVID zero, to be fair to people like Dr. Fauci, it's not COVID zero. His threshold at which point we can get back to normal, as he says it, is fewer than 10,000 cases nationally per day. The problem here is twofold. One, what if we never get there? Right now, we have something like 40,000 cases per day. The notion here that we could be, this could be with us forever in some form, whatever it is, even if it's not a lethal form, is a very real prospect. And what if, that, what if we never get there? What would that preclude? Second, if we did get there, how much you want to bet either Dr. Fauci wouldn't adopt that kind of messaging, or if he did, he would become persona non grata among the very people who have candles with his face on them on their on their kitchen table and, and pillows on their beds with Dr. Fauci faces on them because they don't want they don't want to get back to that normal and Dr. Fauci would become somebody who is who's uh, you know an obstacle on their pathway to maintaining these sort of restrictions in perpetuity okay but i want to just point out these numbers cuz it gets to this question i'm going to repeat the numbers that david bonson ju- sent me about israel vaccines versus covid so on the 18th of january with 26% of israel's population vaccinated at least one dose there were 952 cases of covid per million so since there are 8 million people there were what is that there are 7000 cases 62% vaccinated, there are 26 cases per thousand people, per million people. So again, multiply that by eight, you have 160,000, 160 cases. 62% means, not both doses, by the way, one dose, 62%. So that's herd immunity. When we get to 62%, is Fauci going to say we're at herd immunity based on the Israeli experiment? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. We have this country that is a Petri dish experiment in what happens when you apply the vaccine to the Petri dish. And we are now having real world numbers, 26 per million with 62% uh, at least partially vaccinated. He, we don't know what the herd immunity number is. We've never known and we will never know. However, he could say tomorrow, based on this evidence, we need to get to 60% and then we can declare herd immunity. Well, he Biden has no ins- is, yeah, go ahead. But Biden is scheduled to, to give some remarks or a, little, a brief, you know, uh, talk about the pandemic and vaccinations on Wednesday this week. So I'll be watching that very closely to see how he messages it. Does he does he take Fauci as his guide and sort of just quote what Fauci's been saying? Does he try to offer some optimism or does he scold people, you know, uh, and, and actually turn into a very partisan issue, the issue of vaccination itself? I, I wonder, I mean, there, there are a fair number of Democrats who think it's, you know, I've seen a few stories over the last week or so about how if you look at who's not getting vaccinated, it's all Trump voters. I mean, there is a there is a real urge to to make this a partisan issue on the part of Democrats. But that's not what Joe Biden ran on. Like his whole thing was like, we're going to solve this. We're going to fix it. He's nearing his 100 days. Is he going to claim a kind of victory and and push us forward with the optimistic message Abe was suggesting? Or is he going to stay in in this kind of Fauci worldview? Look, you know, the iconoclasts in places like the Atlantic are saying, and David Leonard are saying, look, now it's time to really get real. Let's force an end to outdoor mask mandates. That's where that's that's the real iconoclasm here. So the heterodox so opinion brave. on the left is is for outdoor mask mandates. Biden said at the end of his hundred days that the mask mandate was going to be up. Right? How much you want to like bet? That. I mean, no one's even that. That would be fantastical. Okay. But look, I mean, the, 
where where we stand here is yeah this whole line and uh, somebody i think uh, somebody asked fauci on state of the nation on cnn yesterday about this question of the trump voter he's like i don't understand them on the one hand they say that there's you know they they don't want to wear a mask and on the other hand they don't want to get vaccinated so their view is not clear to me and it's like really that's how you want to characterize 75 million people who voted for trump this is now where you're going. You having stat- stood next to Trump mutely while he said stupid things, and now you're going to sort of like defame the entire body of Trump voters by assigning them views that they do not all hold. Whatever polling says, fine, go ahead. Uh, I, I think the key here is New York is going to be a test case of this because you know how many Trump voters there were in New York City. I don't know, twelve percent or something like that. I think it was eighty-eight, twelve, something like that. Uh, we've hit the demand wall. You can now get vaccinated. You know who's you know who's not getting vaccinated? Minorities are not getting vaccinated. African Americans and Hispanics are not getting vaccinated. It's not white people and Trump voters who are not getting vaccinated in New York City. Not in New York City. You you have the, you have some vaccine hesitancy in places that are rural. Right. No, you do. I'm not denying I mean, it. If this notion sure. that you can isolate it yeah. for the Trump voter is itself. An, inf- an infamous thing to do. So humiliate the Trump voter and humiliate your own base. You know, scourge them. You can scourge people for all sorts of reasons. If they smoke, if they do this, if they do that, if they're not going to get the vaccine, this notion that the only reason they're being sweet and loving and gentle about vaccine hesitancy is because they know that the vaccine hesitancy involves people who are in their base, their base, not not the Republican base, their base. Their, their, it's Tuskegee and, you know, the government and, you know, and rumors about how the crack epidemic started and all of that. It's not just Bill, Bill Gates is putting microchips into your body so that he can track you with the vaccine. That is not there. Those are crazy people on one side and there are crazy people on the other side. And the reason that they're not going negative is because they are kowtowing to the crazy people on their side. It's also a shocking admission of insularity if you think the prev- conditions that prevail today are as- outdoor mask mandates. Uh, <laughs> you live in a very blue, dark blue urban center if you think that's how everybody in this country is living. I, I hate to tell you, that's not, that's not the case anywhere else outside your front door. Guys, you know, this is a stressful conversation, and uh, one of the things that I do to uh, alleviate stress sometimes is chew gum. You know that? Like, it gives you kind of a distraction and all this. And you know what about gum? It's the unsung hero when it comes to better oral health. The American Dental Association recommends chewing sugar-free gum for 20 minutes after meals. Because uh, many people don't realize that gum can be an integral part of a healthy oral care routine. And you know who does? Quip, the people who make that great electric toothbrush, the one that reinvented the toothbrush for the modern age. And they've done it again this time for chewing gum. They're launching a new gum that's actually good for your oral health and comes with a dispenser that will remind you of the one-click candy you loved as a kid. Uh, I'm sp- I suppose I'm not supposed to use the word uh, for the candy that uh, you know backwards is spelled Zep, but that's what you're supposed to think of here. Uh, Quip gum can help prevent cavities and freshen breath when chewed for 20 minutes after eating. It's sugar-free and has tooth-friendly xylitol with zero calories. And to satisfy your taste buds, Quip added a long-lasting mint flavor, crunchy tri-layer design, and stamped it all with the classic Quip tongue. The, sl- the slim, travel-ready dispenser available in five colors, metal or plastic, packs and protects up to 10 gum pieces at a time and fits in just about any purse or pocket on the go. Add a gum refill plan for a gift that keeps on giving all year round. Quip's customizable subscription lets you chew and share at your own pace. Plus, the more you buy, the more you save with bulk discounts on extra gum packs. It's not a substitute for brushing and flossing, but this is a great support for your oral health. Pair it with a Quip electric toothbrush for adults and kids, refillable floss, and more great products. And in addition to gum packs, Quip also delivers fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months from $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the misery of in-store shopping. Spread good oral health habits and join the over 5 million mouths already using Quip. Get chewing for less than $2 per pack. Go to getquip.com slash commentary right now. You can get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary. You can also find the Quip electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and more in the oral care aisle at your local Walmart. Quip, the good habits company. 
Uh, what else is there to discuss, you guys? Do we have anything else except for our, our bugbears here? We flew a drone on Mars. Flew a drone on Mars. This is big I, news for me. <laughs> you know what's in that drone? There's apparently a tiny little piece of the cloth from the Wright brothers playing at Kitty Hawk. <clears throat> I mean, NASA has a scheduled mission to uh, the Saturn moon Titan um, Dragonfly, which is going to happen this decade, which is going to make this look like you know, chump change. The thing's a drone that will fly with it, you know, its own battery around the planet and land and take samples and take samples of the atmosphere. It's going to be fantastic. But the first, you know, autonomous flight on another planet is no joke. Uh, it certainly is no joke. That's for sure. And okay. I'm the only person who cares about this. No, maybe the Biden administration can send that to the border instead of Kamala Harris, since she doesn't seem to want to go to the border at all. We can just send the drone, and the drone can give us some information. I just hope we're exploring Mars safely. <laughs> Culture <laughs> safety. Well, we are. Not- I mean, we're, we're, we're pre- we could be contaminating this environment. And there is, a, there is an argument against most exploration of space because we could be contaminating those environments with, you know, for all the precautions that they take before they launch this sort of thing, you never know could be an accident. It's part of the reason why we fly, you know, our, our spent missions, we fly them directly into the atmospheres of these planets. So they burn up just in case, just in case it lands on Europa and ruins the whole planet. So there's a, there's a safety conscious argument against extrasolar exploration or extra uh, planetary exploration. You know, all of those ideas come from science fiction novels. That's the great part about this, is this weird interplay between science fiction and science. You know, the sort of the science, the fact that, um, the fact that Star Wars and Star Trek both survived the 1970s to be franchises in the 80s and 90s is one of the reasons that people think that the space program did not entirely die out. And a lot of the people who ended up going into the space program were in fact inspired by science fiction, by science fiction television, by science fiction movies and ideas like we better do something about not contaminating Europa because there was an A. Van Vaught story where something happened and, you know, a microbe landed on Europa and then they created a space monster that came and ate everybody in Australia. So we better not do it. I mean, it's probably smart. It's like a kind of, uh, you know, it's like burning your trash with not not letting it, you know, not letting it sit around. But it is sort of a funny fact about space exploration. How much of it is this weird interplay with um, with uh, very clever future thinking ideas about stuff, and all of this then, in, 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 you know, influences itself. Uh I didn't know we were going to end up here, but uh, now that we're here, we're going to go goodbye. We're going to say goodbye and reconvene tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.